0: So when when Marcus asked me to to talk in this particular uh, set of seminars on on AI and ethics, I was um, challenged to figure out what I would talk about uh, because I don't do research in ethics and I don't necessarily do research in direct accountability, um, but I've been doing research in artificial intelligence since 1975 So, I figure uh, that given the intervening uh, 40 years that I may have at least picked up some folk knowledge if you will, Uh, though I don't have any real credentials to talk about this particular topic. So, uh, hopefully you won't be disappointed Um, and so uh, I think Marcus is going to hand out the cards that they use at at the uh, Olympic skating where you put up, you know, 9.3, 9.2, whatever. Uh, We'll see if if what I present is at least uh, useful uh, for the time you're going to spend here. I think we all know uh, why it is that uh, accountability in artificial intelligence systems uh, is important. Uh, This is taken from uh, a recent paper um, and if I may quote it, it says, systems can make unfair discrimin- and discriminatory, dis- discriminatory decisions, replicate or develop biases, and in inscrutable and unexpected ways in highly sensitive environments that put human interests and safety at risk. And so there is a concern out there about the growing use of artificial intelligence, the need for it to be fair, transparent, responsible, and therefore accountable. Um, and so the question is, uh, why haven't AI people been concerned about this in the past? I mean, we've been working in this area, people have been working in the AI area for, since the 50s, even going back to the 40s. And the truth of the matter is, uh, we have happy. It's just that people in other uh, disciplines may not be aware of it. And so, when I was an undergraduate here uh, in computer science, uh, I took a course on computers and society, taught by uh, Calvin bell and Al Roden and Al is still here, Uh, uh, Calvin Gottlieb is no longer with us. Um, And they wrote a book on social issues in computing and there was a chapter on privacy and a variety of other topics within the book. Uh, So this is an area that uh, people within computer science have been concerned with uh, for a long time. Um, And in in some sense, uh, I have been tangentially connected to it because uh, I have done some work in real AI applications, um, and this is an example uh, of a real AI application. Uh, and the example is one of preventing failures in the area of uh, power generation. And so, you're probably aware that that uh, in generating power, the province of Ontario uses. Uh, the least expensive methods of power generation so that they limit the overall cost of generating power. Uh, But they're also limited by what they can turn off and on and so nuclear uh, doesn't turn off very well and so you always keep that running and then you have other levels of power generation uh, up to the point that things can turn off quickly such as uh, natural uh, gas-based generation of power. Um, the concern in this application area is being able to detect whether a uh, turbine or generator in power generation is going to fail or not, because if it does fail catastrophically, uh, the cost of replacement power could run over a million dollars a day. So. It, Behooves the power generation corporation to be able to predict when uh, these devices are going to fail, so that they can then take them down during periods in which they don't need the power, and hence they're not going to incur millions of dollars a day in replacement energy costs. So, developing systems that can monitor sensors on uh, on steam turbines and generators and predict failures before they occur uh, uh, is very important and. Um, and the issue of accountability was something that was uh, very important uh, at that time also. Um, this is just an example of a, um, of a rule-based system where the rules are transformed into a network. For example, this is a rule that says taking temperature sensor one and two and combining it into a new reading. Another rule says there's a main shaft imbalance if temperature readings are greater than 200 and uh, there's vibration that's greater than 100 hertz. Then there's a main shaft imbalance, and you have a broken filter. If there's a main shaft imbalance, and uh, there's a problem with oil clarity, though, you don't want to take that into account if the oil clarity sensor is malfunctioning. So, uh, the system not only did diagnosis of turbines and generators, but it did diagnosis of the sensors from which it was getting its readings because it turns out that sensors failed more often than the turbine and generator itself. Um, And so um, early work in the creation of rule-based systems uh, and this work in steam turbine and generator diagnosis which um, I worked on, uh, this work dates back to 1981, earlier work back to 75 in the medical domain in using rule-based systems to do diagnosis was absolutely concerned with accountability of the design of these AI-based systems so that we could explain to physicians, or they could explain to physicians, why it is that a particular diagnosis was generated by the system. And in the case of turbine and generator diagnosis, uh, we need to be able to explain to the engineers why it is that we believe, why the system believes that there is a, uh, a problem there. Um, these types of systems that were based on rules were successful, um, just, that was me back in 81 or so. Um, the, they, were, they were successful uh, in that this system which I did the original design work in 81, 82 um, was put into production use in 85 and is still in production use today monitoring over 2,000 turbines and generators around the world, uh, which surprised the hell of me uh, because I didn't know what happened to it and I actually went and did a historical paper, which is the second one, uh, that was published in 2015, uh, when I discovered that system was actually in use. I have to go off on this tangent because it was really, really scary experience because back then in the 1980s we wrote a user manual Um, and when I came there in 2014 to visit the Uh, the head office that runs this system in Orlando, Florida um, in a meeting they took me aside and they brought out the manual from 1985 or whatever and they asked me what did you mean by this passage okay and it felt really strange I felt like I wrote the Bible and 3,000 years later somebody's saying what did you mean by this (laughs) passage I didn't even remember writing that passage, let alone be able to explain uh, what was behind uh, behind that. Anyway, um, so the concern within the, the computer science community and the AI community does not date back one or two or three years. We're talking about decades and decades of concern because the types of systems we were creating, in this case in the 70s for medicine, 80s for uh, uh, turbine generators and other uh, Systems of that nature, mechanical systems, uh, we were always concerned with accountability because we had to justify the reasoning and the results of the systems that we created. Period. Why now? Um, why are we looking at this again? Um, uh, when I read things about this stuff, you know, I see statements like, uh, well, AI is now starting to be used. Well, AI has been used for decades, it's just that some people haven't noticed or paid attention, Um, and so why now? Well, there's a fear um, that is growing in society. One of the fears is this whole notion of an AI singularity occurring, and so for those of you who are unaware of the term singularity, it's used to refer to when AI systems become smarter than human beings, And then accelerate in their intelligence at a rapid rate so that uh, we end up being in a situation like the matrix. Um, We're only good for generating power uh, energy sources Uh, and there are people out there who worry about that. Um, People with lots of money uh, who've created uh, institutes in that area. There's also the existential fear um, that, you know, where am I going to be employed ten years from now? And and I get asked periodically to comment on what I think the impact of AI is going to be um, on the labor market. Um, uh, I guess if I was around uh, when uh, Massey Ferguson was first started, they would have asked me what the impact of tractors would be on the Uh, rural society farms and things like that. Um, For some reason we keep generating jobs to uh, uh, absorb uh, the population, uh, the demand in the population, but there's a fear um, because we are not very good at predicting uh, what the next generation of jobs will be and I'm not going to attempt to that. But there's a more near-term concerned about AI and why it's really stoking fear in people at this time. Um, And that's because we're all caught up in the automated guided vehicle uh, world. Uh, Eminent concern and ultimately a stampede by anybody and everybody who can uh, put wheels on an axle uh, to build something that's automatically Guided. This is the Google uh, Waymo uh, car. And so, when I was looking on the internet for information about how Google's car works, okay, this is what I, I found. It's from Business Insider. And so, since they're obviously an insider to all this, they know how they work. And this is how it works. Uh, they have sensors in the back, sensors in the front, forward-facing cameras, LiDAR. It's all about cameras. Um, but to doesn't say anything about thinking or reasoning or whatever, okay? And so the default that we have when we think about these automated guided vehicles as to the, what the brains are behind this um, is that there's some type of neural network embedded in there that's making all the decisions, things of that nature, et cetera. Um, and so the... The introduction of these vehicles, um, as I said, there's a stampede to enter the AGV, and uh, whenever there's a stampede, uh, somebody dies, uh, and sure enough, uh, people have started to die uh, in this stampede to create AGVs. and these are, these are not examples that uh, you haven't heard about. The Tesla driver got decapitated, uh, going underneath a truck. Uh, I I think this one is very interesting, it's from, uh, uh, I can't remember what the magazine or whatever it is, uh, source is, but you know, Uber breaks self-driving car driver, reverse road ride to kill pedestrian. Um, But the really interesting thing is the advertisement from Uber, (laughs) safest rides on the road. Now I'm I'm maybe pushing this a little too far, there's only two deaths that we know of, okay? That's not a whole lot, okay? There's a lot of people who died uh, on the roads. But there is something that you need to keep in mind when you think about where we are in the development of AGVs: is average miles between disengagements. And so this, these numbers are from 2017. Or I'll show you numbers from 2017. Where disengagement is defined to be any event where a human safety driver has to assume manual control of the vehicle in order to intervene in the interest of safety or take control because the automated vehicle system has failed or disengaged on its own. Um, Do you think fail or disengage on its own? I remember in early days, one of, not early days, but three or four cars ago when when it was electronics uh, on cars were relatively new, uh, that the car I was driving at that time, I think was based upon Microsoft operating system, and it decided to reboot itself as I was on the 401, uh, and that's very disconcerting to have your car decide to reboot <laughs> while you're on the 401. Um, anyway, some very interesting uh, numbers that you should know about. That um, in, two, uh, in California, the average miles between uh, disengagements uh, is 200 on average across all HEBs in California. GM's Cruise is 4,600 miles between disengagements. Uh, Waymo is 5,500 miles between disengagements. That's pretty neat, isn't it? I mean number of miles before something, somebody has to intervene. Until you look at the next one. Humans is 238,000 to 1.2 million miles. Um, All that really says is we have a long way to go before we see uh, generalized AGVs, or what I think are referred to as level five AGVs that can operate in all terrains, under all conditions and things like that. We currently operate AGVs within highly structured environments and under uh, restricted uh, weather conditions and. And road conditions, etc. So we still have a long way to go. So we are concerned, whether the concerns are valid or not is another thing altogether, Um, but we are concerned and uh, uh, hence we are, we want these intelligent systems to be more accountable. This is from Dingnam's paper at the bottom: Responsible AI for designing AI for human values. Um, She refers to accountability, to the need to explain and justify one's decisions and actions to its partners, etc. Accountability, these decisions must be derivable from and explained by the decision-making algorithm used. Now, this is an interesting one. Includes the need for representation of moral values and societal norms, holding in the context of the operation. That's a fairly challenging thing to do. Uh, and we'll get back to that in, in a while. And accountability requires both the function of guiding action by forming beliefs and making decisions and the function of explanation. Um, so that's accountability. She defines responsibilities as a role of people themselves and to the capability of AI systems to answer for one's decisions, identify errors or unexpected results. Um, so that's responsibility, and then transparency refers to the ability to describe, inspect, and reproduce the mechanism by which AI systems make decisions and learn to adapt. This is a challenge, okay? It's a big challenge. And the way we have approached it traditionally is we create laws. Uh, in the USA, there's the Equal Credit Opportunity Act and the Fair Credit Reporting. Act to increase transparency in the credit card uh, industry, and this is all free the use of any type of predictive analytics. And so, we have created laws that increase transparency and um, uh, allow for some type of explanation to be created. The European Union 95 created the Data <coughs> Protection Directive, guaranteeing individuals a right to access to demand knowledge of the logic involved in automated. Automated, decision-making for credit So at least we know within the one narrow domain of giving credit, whether it's credit card or mortgage or credit line, whatever the case may be, laws have been inactive. This is a more recent one enacted 25th of May of this year which is a general data production regulation um, and one clause in it is the right to explanation and note that it's non-binding meaning that it is an aspiration but none of the members of the EU are bound to actually uh, uh, follow it. But part of the right to explanation is this piece over here, which is uh, in any case subject to suitable safeguards which should include specific data, 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 Uh, You also can obtain an explanation of the decision reached after such assessment and and to challenge the decision. They want an explanation. Okay, and that's 2018. They demand an explanation. So, neural nets—that's the darling of 2018. We created the Vector Institute in Toronto. They got what 150 million. Anybody from Vector Institute here? Okay, one person from Vector Institute doesn't want to really show these from Vector Institute, but what is 150 million in uh, in funding? That's a lot of funding, Um, and it's primarily. Uh, machine learning, and I would presume primarily neural nets, at least everybody I know associated with it is a neural network researcher. Um, and there's this belief that neural nets are going to take over the world, and uh, hence we're going to need some type of explanation. Um, and so the question is how easy is it to explain a neural nets decision? And that's an example of a neural net in the abstract. It doesn't really do anything, there's nothing in there. Um, but it's an abstract visualization in which there are inputs on the left side outputs on the right side which are are classes uh, that you're identifying and in between are these hidden layers that represent weights of inputs to produce an output and it goes it's a lot more complicated than that Um, and the question is can we explain the decision-making of a neural net because that's what The EU is demanding, that's what everybody is demanding in accountability is is the ability to explain. So I'm not a researcher in neural nets, and hence not in the area of explaining the decision the neural net makes, okay? I want to make that clear. So what I did, I decided to go to Google Scholar and do a search on all the research that's been funded. (laughs) Sorry about that, I'll speak a little louder. to, to search Google Scholar to find out what papers have been written on the explainability of neural nets. And I figure given the concern that exists within society today, uh, that there would be a lot of people write or doing research on neural net explainability. So, that's the end result of my search explainable neural networks is what I searched by, other variations uh, return basically the same thing, and I could not find one research article on explaining neural nets. So on the one hand, society is demanding explanations, on the other hand, I can't find anything. Now, I guarantee you there's something out there. Okay, There has to be something out there, because we're demanding that there be something out there. But I can't find anything in the literature on it, okay? And that's very interesting, if not weird and strange, uh, et cetera. And I don't know if it's because nobody has been able to get funding in the area of explanation neural nets, or it's because nobody knows how to do it. (laughs) The latter, not the former, okay? I mean we can mechanic, we can go in and look at every node and the weights on the inputs to a node, what function was used at the node that led to an output, we can explain what the parameters are, it's this number, this number, this number, this number, but to create an explanation that would allow you to understand the basis for the decision is a step beyond uh, where we are today. And I don't know when we're going to be able to create explain explanations of neural nets. But that's not the whole story. If you go and you look at the architecture of an automated guided vehicle, it's not all neural nets. So, when we think about an AGV as this neural net that we need explanatory capabilities, we are in essence barking up the wrong tree. Because we actually don't need neural nets to explain anything. Because the neural nets that are being used in AGVs, are being used for pattern recognition. Okay? Can we identify an object based upon the inputs of images, radar, things of that nature? Okay? And neural nets are amazingly good at that. Okay? Now, we could ask the question, why didn't you recognize that bicycle? And that's a, an important question. But recognizing a bicycle in front of me is only one piece of information that's flowing into the automated guided vehicle. And so the AGV has all sorts of other systems. We have sensor refinement, object refinement, situation refinement, risk assessment, action planning, decision making. All of that is not being done by neural nets. They're being done by other types of AI, like planning and scheduling systems constraint-based reasoning systems and goes on and on and on, okay? but not being done by neural nets. And also being done by standard uh, control theory and, and, and other aspects of engineering, computer science, etc. Um, but it's not a neural net. And so the concept that there is this single neural net that is driving your car is a mistake because the world when it talks about AGB's technology and AI doesn't understand what's going on or is unwilling to dig deeper into the architecture of these systems and what really makes an AGB better. Okay, now, I didn't make this up, this came out of a, uh, a controls uh, journal uh, in that area. Now, why am I interested in accountability. So in an earlier uh, appearance at this table, I talked about smart cities and in particular the urban operating system. So the next set of slides I'm going to present are basically taken from that talk for those of you who weren't there or if you're like me, wouldn't remember it anyway. Um, So what I'm going to do is talk about the smart city operating system. I'm going to motivate it. So. As you saw at the beginning one of my newer titles is is uh, associate director in charge of research for the new school cities here at the University of Toronto Um, and so one would think I do research related cities I do Uh, I'm not going to go into all the different areas that I work in but one area that I have been looking at uh, for about two years is the whole notion of what the operating system is going to be to run a city okay what's the underlying information and communication infrastructure that's going to run the city and I'm not talking about whether we put fiber in the ground that's easy stuff okay i'm not talking about whether i'm using ip http world wide web that's the easy stuff the question is how do i actually get things done in the city okay how do i get that road repaved? how do i get the sewers fixed how do i get the garbage collected how do i get Everything that a city does, the transportation system operating properly, how do we do that? And that's what the operating system is focused on, is making sure that the city keeps running in all the different dimensions that a city operates. And that's not just the physical infrastructure, it's the social infrastructure too. It's schools, it's public health, uh, it's recreation, parks, and it goes on and on and on. Governance finance, et cetera, et cetera, what is, that urban oper- what is that operating system that allows a city to operate? Now if you go into the literature and you look at how the urban operating system is defined, you see something like, the urban o- operating system would handle tasks like processing your payment for a taxi fare, send traffic, road sensors, readings up to a server in the cloud, or verifying a residence sens- entity as they approach the door of their home. Uh, bits of the city interact with each other okay and city with the OS will broker the exchange and then that's Townsend Townsend wrote this great book about smart cities okay so well worth reading um, DeWall says data is fed in a system that aggregates information in real-time can be used in different contexts maybe to semantic knowledge bases you can ask your informatics device questions like what's the best place with regard to my current location whether etc Okay. that's his perspective on what the urban operating system and so I ask you what do those uh, visions of what the urban operating system have to do with the running of the city okay it has to do with things that occur at the edge of the city ah, it's nice to have an app that tells me what, what the closest uh, Japanese restaurant is but you know quite frankly I live in the annex I walk out 50 meters in any direction, i got five Japanese restaurants. I live in the West End, so it's all Japanese restaurants. Um, what does that do with transportation, education, culture, public housing, social services, food and shelter, public safety, water and sewage? It has nothing to do with any of that. These people, based on their writings, don't appear to understand what the bulk of the effort is that goes on in the city. So, Let's consider the following example. Let's say your public works, you want to pave a road. How do you get a road paved? You put out a tender that says, we want to pave Young Street between Bloor and whatever, Wellesley, OK? Uh, here are some criteria, uh, requirements for the paving in terms of materials and depth and whatever. Okay, and you send it out to contractors, and you get a bid back. Is that all there is? Is that what it takes? Well, if you're going to tear up the road, you may want to ask the water department, is there something that you need to do under the ground with respect to your water system? And just today you may have heard about a water main break, of a water main that is older than I am, uh, that's resulted in a sinkhole and the flooding of a part of, I can't remember if it's Street or something like that. But the water department may say, you know what? We've been planning to replace the water main, it's old. Uh, we need more capacity to da 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 Once you start opening up the street, we'll go deeper and, and deal with the water. main. Same is gonna be true with sewage. They wanna go in. Uh, power may want to take the overhead power lines and put it under, underground. Uh, permits will have to be talked to because it may be the case that during the time that you're gonna run that, Either the Santa Claus parade or whatever parade is your most favorite is already scheduled to run. Uh, the police need to be informed because they're going to have to be brought into play to block off things, etc. Transportation—you're you know going to uh, stop Young Street. It, well, if we did have transportation on Young Street other than the subway, uh, but imagine you had buses going down Young Street. Oh boy, we're going to have to go and redirect all of our stuff along Young Street uh, and the businesses. Are, yeah, You're going to do this over Christmas? Uh-uh. <laughs> ain't happening. Um, so there's a lot of different departments within the city you have, to, you have to deal with, that you have to coordinate and cooperatively come up with a time during which all of them will be satisfied, all of them can get their work done, etc. So getting work done in the city is not something that's done independent of everybody else across the city. It's done in cooperation with everybody else in the city, at least a city that's well-managed Things are done in cooperation. So doing things in a city requires a high degree of cooperation, integration, interaction, etc. in order to achieve an acceptable result. So what does that say about smart cities? Well I call this a smart city fallacy. So again you put on your AI hat or you put on your AI hat because you don't know really what AI is and and whether it's relevant to the to the problem that we're dealing with. The first thing that you realize about a city is that viewing a city as a system we can rigidly control using some type of algorithms or set of algorithms is crazy. Okay, the complexity and uncertainty that exists within the city works against us. Okay. How can you control something where you can't even predict an hour into the future what the totality of the city, the system, etc. is going to be, and how it impinges upon your decision? You can't. Instead, you have to view the city differently. It's composed of thousands of agents, whether they be computer agents or human agents, uh, and activities operating in loose coordination according to a set of rules and laws imposed by society and subject to a set of laws not under our control okay now I remember once a uh, number uh, some time ago I was doing work with Boeing uh, aircraft um, and they described to me what a 747 and I've never forgotten it and they said it's a million parts flying in loose coordination oh sorry in close close coordination <laughs> uh, I mean that's their view I mean they're absolutely amazed at that, that thing goes up and comes down uh, in one piece um, anyway but it's true of the city It's composed not thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of things going on in parallel, loosely coordinated and not in a well-controlled dance like a symphony, but you know, sometimes it's like traffic, you know, we we have some rules that tell us, you know, don't go through a red light, you know, stop at a stop sign. Uh, It's amazing how well traffic flows based upon a relatively small set of rules. And you got to think about city in that way, that where it's amazing that city operates with a relatively small set of rules that keep things somewhat in coordination. But there are things that work against us: Murphy's Law, what can go wrong will go wrong; uh, Mole's Law, Multy's Law, no battle plan survives contact with the enemy that you can't plan too far in the future. In detail, that is, Billings Law, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Don't we know that one? And my own law says there will always be people who work the system on their own, be- to their own benefit or for every rule to someone who's ready to break it. Um, and all these come to play within something like the system we call a city. Okay? They're all in play at all times, and if you think otherwise, then you're kidding yourself. So, the observation is that the urban operating system will not be richly engineered monolithic software architecture, it won't be this gargantuan neural net, it won't be a set of services. We talk in terms of the, the computer world and a sea of services, and we use business process plans to get things coordinated. It won't be an, or, an orchestrated uh, thing, because uncertainty complexity uh, works against us. Instead, it will be a network of intelligent agents dynamically interacting to flexibly and contextually uh, achieve the goals of the city. And so they need to coordinate. Now the interesting thing is we can't ignore the urban operating system. The reason why we can't ignore it, we can't say, "Oh, well you know Fox is talking about the urban operating system maybe 30 years down the road, uh, this thing is going to come to pass and you know that's great, and we heard it here in 2018 as opposed to 2048. Um, but the reality is the Urban Operating System exists today. If you think about it, where do you go for information about the city? You go to the web. You don't go down City Hall any longer, unless you're really happy. used to be you go down City Hall for information. The web has become your interface. The systems that the city provides becomes the interface between you and city, and in essence that operating system, or the the, the beginnings of an Urban Operating System is uh, becoming the primary base of the city. Think about that. Your relationship with the city is actually with the urban operating system. It doesn't run the city today yet. It provides information, uses you as sensors to get data in and things like that. It allows you to do certain things. But the urban operating system, for all intents and purposes, is becoming the city from our personal perspective. And that's really a game changer. So the question then you have to ask is how do we want to interact with the city? If the city is going to force you to interact with it via this information system, how do you as a citizen want the city to interact with you? And so in the previous talk, I talked about four dimensions. Behavioral dimensions, that is the smart city urban operating system is going to be aware, has to be adaptive, uh, creative, and accountable. So now I'm back to this accountability issue. I'm, and you know what? I'm going to breeze through because I have to what five, five fifteen. Whatever. I'm not going to go through all these uh, again. Uh, the video is available, isn't it? Video is available if you want to see these. Anyway, where the awareness has more to do more than sensing the environment. Know what is to be expected, the limits or constraints on what is being observed. Know whether deviations are significant. Know who or what has to be informed when deviations occur. And there are levels of awareness I'm not going to go into. Uh, The adaptive behavioral dimension of an urban operating system uh, is the ability to do the right thing by flexibly responding to events with a focus on outcomes and not means. And so there are levels of um, awareness. Sorry, adaptiveness. The next uh, dimension is creative, constructing new or better ways of achieving goals. Uh, and so there are levels of that also. Diagnosis, empowerment, optimization. Again, I'm not gonna go through that because I wanna get to the end of my presentation a reasonable amount of time. And then the fourth one is accountable. Um, that is cities must be held accountable for their actions. If the urban operating system is a city, what I'm saying is that the urban operating system has to be accountable to you. Um, meaning it has to be responsible, determining why a particular outcome resulted. Uh, It has to be introspective, determining why decisions were made, honest mistakes, poor judgment, bias, favor treatment, conflicts of interest, illegal behavior, Um, and it also has to be an advocate for you, which means the urban operating system has to act as an ombudsman um, to make sure that you are represented on. Uh, well within the whole automation. Of the city. So that's just a quick uh, run through of my urban operating system presentation, but the the key thing is that the fourth behavioral dimension has to do with accountability. So now what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and talk about accountability in AI systems um, in a little more detail. Not technical detail, but um, broadly generalizations about AI systems. So what are the drivers of accountability? We've already identified it. Complexity is the driver that makes accountability difficult. The systems that we are talking about are too damn complex. Uncertainty makes accountability very difficult. Deficiencies in algorithms, you know, we somehow assume that these, these Neural nets or search systems or natural language understanding systems, etc., operate well. Um, it reminds me, years ago, I had a student do their PhD on what we refer to as ontologies for representing quality, and that is knowledge representations for quality. And we use the ISO 9000 standard, which is a quality standard. And what the ISO 9000 standard says, here is how you are going to measure whether what you produce in your manufacturing plant is consistent with the requirements that you stated at the outset. So people interpreted ISO 9000 as a quality standard. It's really a requirements validation standard, because if your requirement was to produce crack, okay, then it will guarantee that you produce crack in a consistent manner. Um, our algorithms are not necessarily very good, okay, and that leads to an accountability issue. Then illicit or biased behavior is another dimension that makes accountability uh, difficult to deal with. Now when I started uh, putting this talk together, um, I started going back to the early days of systems theory, and how they viewed uh, systems, because we're really talking about the accountability systems. And okay? uh, mm-hmm. 1943 paper written by, actually I don't have the paper here, um, the reference here, it's a paper written by Rosenbluth uh, who actually comes out of medicine, physiology, okay, and so the, the intuitions that they were coming up with with respect to Systems and their behavior was actually coming out of that domain. The second author was Norbert Wiener, and so those of you who are familiar uh, with cybernetics and systems theory and all that, Norbert Wiener is one of the stellar people in that area. So this is uh, an early paper by him and Rosenberg. There's a third person on it. I have it at the end. I don't remember about that. And they talked to about they talked about uh, the behavior. of a system which has to do with the analysis of the output of that system and the input of that system. So right from the back, they're saying, look, I can observe a system, and I can observe it in two ways. I can look at it from an input-output perspective, or I can look at it from a functional perspective, which is the intrinsic organization of the entity study, that is the inside workings of that system. Now, they were talking about like single cell things and stuff like that. We're talking about broader sense of systems. And they also were talking about purposeful behavior, the act of behavior may be interpreted as directed to a type goal or, or teleology. Um, and so, in summary, back then, and these are discussions that don't start with these people. This goes back in the time of philosophy. Um, but even back then they were talking about two types of accountability, functional accountability and behavioral accountability. Can we uh, do explanation from a behavioral perspective versus a functional perspective? And this becomes very important because only a subset of the components of the nervous system may be amenable to functional accountability. That is to say that neural nets are not functionally accountable we don't know or cannot explain the inner workings or we can't explain it in a way that anybody else around the table would understand. Okay, So at best we can do is achieve behavioral accountability. And if components of our system are only behaviorally accountable, that means the whole system is only behaviorally accountable. And so this notion that the EU has put in place, that we want explainable systems, is predicated on the notion of functional accountability, and that's not possible, and so do we go back to them and say, hey, we can only do behavioral accountability, we can tell you what the inputs are, we can tell you what the outputs are for certain modules, certain subpieces of the system, is that good enough? I don't think so, I mean, that's not the intent. That particular law now so there's a problem in achieving accountability we can't do it in the way that people want us to do it that is providing explanations that that can focus on the function of each piece of that system but there's a broader perspective on accountability what does the system have to be accountable the concerns that they had in the 40s and it's actually fun to look at that literature because uh, uh, there was an argument between uh, Rosenbluth and Taylor, sorry not Taylor, and uh, Wiener, Norbert Wiener, and another professor named Taylor, and I don't know if that's the Taylor from Taylorism, that is the, the person who created uh, the scientific management and industrial engineering and everything like that. I didn't go back far enough to figure out which Taylor that was. But they had have, they have an argument in the journals that took place over a decade um, about this, which is rather enlightening to see. Anyway, um, but in, in our time, accountability is much, much more than just this functional and behavioral. We have accountability for data. We have very, very stringent privacy laws, and we have to be accountable. Even though that we don't have the technology to achieve these stringent privacy, we still have the laws of privacy. it's like explanation. We have to be accountable for reasoning, and that's not just uh, recognition tasks, but planning, coordination, decision-making, and we also have to be accountable for executing. That is, once we come up with a plan, once we coordinate with everybody, how we go about executing, what our, what our executional behavior is, uh, we have to be held accountable. And I like to think that accountability uh, can be uh, viewed at from three different other dimensions conformance, performance, and intention. Um, conformance, as the uh, Business Dictionary says, is certification or confirmation that a good service or conduct meets the requirements of legislation, etc., practices, prescribed rules, regulations, etc. Do we conform to the rules of the corporation? Or the city or the state or whatever the case may be and that's really important is to achieve conformance. Do we know how to do that? Second was performance. Um, the accomplishment of a task measured against preset known standards of accuracy, completeness, cost and speed in a contract performance is deemed to be the fulfillment of an obligation and that releases and all liabilities. Do we know how to be accountable for performance. And then the third one is even more interesting intention, the purpose or attitude towards the effect of one's actions or conduct. Okay, And this is interesting when you when you bring the UN SDGs, everybody know what the sustainable development goals are for the UN? Now they're very broad goals on how the world is going to become a better place. And when I think about intention, I mean quite frankly, what I'm thinking about. What is the ultimate intent of what a city, as a complex system, is going to do? Because really the city is all about creating a better life for all of us. Okay, The city is the pinnacle of civilization, if you will. And that's all wrapped up in the SDGs itself. So, Thinking about all these things, looking at accountability from all these different dimensions and different types of things that have to be accountable, I had to ask myself, okay, do I have anything interesting to say uh, about how we can achieve accountability? And so I came up with uh, a few principles. Um, uh, I can be easily argued out of them. Uh, but uh, principle one is being accountable by design. Can we achieve accountability by designing in? the ability of conformance, performance intent into our data, our decision making, our execution. Now when you think about it, if we look at bespoke custom software, uh, it would have to be verified if we want to do functional accountability, That is we have to make sure that the actual code does what it's supposed to do. You know something? I remember when I was a graduate student, which is long, long time ago. I think the Star Star Wars starts off like that a long, long time ago in a distant galaxy. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that when I, the time between now when I was an undergrad. Uh, long, long time ago. You know, people were doing research on automated verification, and validation. Okay. We're still doing research on automated verification and validation. And we still don't really have that nut crack from a Usable set of technologies that can be applied in a general way. Um, so nobody knows really how to uh, do accountability by design. Uh, it's a nice idea. Um, there has been research in this area about accountability in sub areas to achieve accountability by design and you often see a reference to deontic logic Um, and for those of you who are not into symbolic logic deontic logic is is a modal logic that refers to necessity it's necessary that you do this or more recently they refer to as obligations so when you think about privacy you could think about (coughs) it's necessary that you, uh, or you're obliged to, inform somebody whenever anybody accesses this data. So in health systems, if somebody accesses a private a patient's record, you may be obliged to communicate that not only to the patient that somebody's accessed it, but also to the privacy officer or the, the uh, hospital or whatever. The only problem with deontic logic is it's a very nice way of characterizing the system, it's a great method. Uh, logical formulation of specifying obligations and things of that nature. Um, but computationally it's useless. Okay, so if we were to design systems based on using deontic logic, logic uh, it would not uh, be computationally practical to use it in any in anyway. So they're nice ways of doing research in theory. They're not good ways of building practical systems in which we want to achieve accountability. So, there are other AI methods though that are amenable to this. There's an AI method, and this goes back to the early days of AI called heuristic search, where you search techniques, in this case we're looking at, uh, let's say we have a map and we want to find a way to get from point A to point B, then the heuristic search system will will consider alternative paths from this point, or I don't know, wherever a rad is, it considers uh, getting from a RAD to someplace around it, and then from there to around it, and, there, and anyway, so it's, it searches through the network, okay? And the way that accountability by design can manifest itself is there's some way to represent the rules, the laws, et cetera, in such a way that when we generate an alternative, going from here to here to here, We can apply the rule or the law and say, no, that's not valid because um, nobody's allowed to enter that city. Or you're not allowed to visit more than three uh, cities in your tour, or whatever the case may be. So incorporating rules and and et cetera uh, in evaluating those in the search space is one way you can achieve accountability by design. Another way, another method that we have that may be amenable to the to accountability by design within AI is what's referred to as constraint satisfaction and optimization. And that's where we represent the world as in a constraint graph. Um, I know it's going to be difficult to understand this but we're back to the roads example, painting the road. Um, So if, if we represent paving the road as an activity it's going to be performed during a time interval which has a start time and end time and a duration. And so the trick is we want to figure out what's going to be a time that's acceptable uh, to all the different departments. So I can say the water top department wants to do, uh, replace the water mains, that's what that activity is here. It'll have a start time and end time and duration. And the time at which this activity is going to be performed, that is this time interval, should be during this time interval. The sewage department will say, hey, I want to replace the sewer lines, that's their activity, and my time interval has a start time and end time duration, and whatever that interval is, is going to be during this time interval too. And then I'm going to have another link here that says we want to do sewage, that is this time interval it has to occur before this time interval, uh, because we don't want to put in water lines before sewage in case there's a break. We want to get the sewage stuff right, and then we'll put water in after that. And these are constraint networks because what you see here is there's no numbers. But once somebody starts putting a number to any of these times or durations or whatever, the fact that the start time is specified to be a particular date means that the latest end uh, begin time of, of water has to be after the end time over here. And so once you start putting numbers in, the effect of specifying those numbers travel through the network and restrict the possible times mm-hmm. of all the other activities. Those are what we call constraint networks. Um, and it turns out that a number of different rules, laws, et cetera, can be rep- represented as constraints embedded in these types of networks. So it is possible for certain types of AI to be able to do accountability by design. okay? But not all types of AI. Now let's get to that intent one. Um, the Three Laws of Robotics by Isaac Asimov. Okay. Now this this guy is brilliant. I, I don't know if any of you read science fiction but if you read one science fiction writer read Asimov. Uh, well I can recommend others but um, Asimov is, is the uh, dean of um, science fiction. And he came up with the Three Laws of Robotics which most people are aware of especially in 2018 because it's sometimes referred to in the whole accountability. Uh, literature uh, a robot may not injure a human being or through an action allow a human being uh, to come to harm a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings except uh, where such orders would conflict with the first law and a robot must protect its own existence as long as it doesn't conflict with it's used to the question is from an accountability perspective can we embed laws like this into our AI systems now you would think that we would put it into the read-only memory, you know, if you understand computers, you put it into read-only memory, because you don't want anybody to cancel the laws on you. So when you build a robot, there should be some read-only memory, it contains the laws, and nobody has the ability to go and and uh, uh, and change those laws. But do we know how to do that? Well, keep that in mind and look at this picture. This is a Rube Goldberg picture. Of a system. So if you're familiar, if you're not familiar with Rube Goldberg, uh, he would do these fanciful systems that do very simple things, uh, but they're hugely complicated, okay, and things interacted with each other, etc. And when I think about a city, I think about a Rube Goldberg diagram, um, because our cities are not designed, they evolve, okay and there's all sorts of strange interactions connections horizontal vertical interactions etc etc and the question becomes how can a system be accountable when both the system and the environment it operates is continually changing and it's complicated that's the other thing change it's always changing okay so when we think about the city being dynamic always changing complicated interactions we now have to think about the different types of effects that we have to reason about if we want to achieve accountability. It's easy to do accountability if we're dealing with first-order effects—that is, an action that has a direct consequence of breaking a rule or constraint. Okay. So, if the rule is you can't murder somebody, okay, then it's pretty easy to figure out if you're going to murder somebody or not. If you have a gun in your hand, you've got to pull the trigger. First order effect. Okay. Second order effect is, I sold you the gun. Okay. Now, I didn't kill somebody, but I sold them the implement by which they failed to kill somebody. And third order effect goes even further back. And to nth order effects. And this is why accountability by design is so difficult, is because we're not just dealing with first order effects. we're dealing with nth order effects. So if I'm a robot, if I go back to the three, ro- the, the three laws of robotics, how do I know my action is going to cause harm? I only really know it if it's first order, but I'm not sure in a second order or third order situation. And that's the nature of the systems we're dealing with. There are, there are complicated systems that have interactions that are not only first order based, at first order effects, but nth order effects. And I ran across this example uh, about second order effects. Bahrain is surrounded by a network of underground freshwater springs, which were responsible for both watering the island's plant life and spurring the local oysters to cultivate pearls of remarkable quality. As a country, single large city, Manama. Developed land in the city center became scarce, so developers adopted a process called land reclamation, which involved excavating dirt from the interior of the island and depositing it on the coast, reclaiming land from the sea. This approach was successful in creating new land, but at a much deeper cost than anticipated. The island's network of springs dried up, turning the country into a desert. Okay. Second order effect. Actually, third order effect. Um, how do you anticipate that? So accountability by design is really, really difficult when we're dealing with not with nth order effects. So that leads to the second principle, which is forensic accountability. That is, for these complicated systems, the complex systems that are operating under uncertainty, highly dynamic and changing environments, et cetera, et cetera, uh, illicit uh, behaviors, uh, deficient algorithms. You know, I make things seem t- you know really bad. They are. That's what it is. Then you have to go towards forensic accountability, and that means auditing, and that means logging all activities, decision, accesses, verifying a posteriori of a participant or whatever it is the activity is as expected, Attribution, finding the responsible participant in the case of de- deviation from policies. Evidence, produces evidence that can be used to convince an auditor of a problem has or has not occurred. So the, the, the key thing is, we have to start logging everything that goes on. Because we can't do it by design, we have to do it uh, forensically. Which means we have to leave a trail, a digital trace. But the sad thing is, is that we don't know what to put in the trail, okay? There's work in, in the area of privacy as to what uh, to put in the digital trace or log if you will. You can look at some obvious concepts there, are actually uh, concepts is here in, in my department, which works in the area of privacy. Um, but we really don't know with respect to the complicated systems that we're dealing with. What is it that we need to log? So it's a big open question at this point. Now, let's imagine that we did have a log of everything that's going on within the system. Now you've got to remember that since we're dealing with a system control, composed of thousands of agents, we're dealing with huge numbers of log entries in separate logs across the entire system. And so you got the problem figuring out which logs you need, which portions of the log, what the subset of information is, so let's ignore that. Um, but what we want to do in forensic accountability is we want to say are there patterns that we have identified a priori that are abnormal and that we want to recognize. Okay. And so there's been research in this area. Um, uh, It's referred to as plan-based complex event detection Um, and the whole area of of, uh, plan-based event classification has being a research area for many, many years within the artificial intelligence community. Uh, But it really has to do with if you've identified these patterns a priori, then we may be able to detect by looking at these logs which of these patterns are are problematic. And so we may actually be able to, in real time, identify abnormal behaviors, or at least within a reasonable amount of time, after the event uh, that something has gone wrong uh, and we have to do something about it. But the problem with complex systems is, we can't know, at the outset, what are all the abnormal behaviors. Because the abnormal behaviors are the ones that we don't know about as opposed to the ones that we do about If we knew about it, we'd put in place a rule or a law or we'd the people or whatever the case may be. So we're really dealing also with unknown pattern detection. Okay? And then there's a distinction between high frequency and low frequency. And so, high frequency says we may be amenable to statistical techniques or machine learning techniques. Low frequency means that um, we're gonna have to rely upon semantic techniques, which means actually understanding the nature of events, interactions, etc., as opposed to relying upon statistical techniques. That's a problem. Principle three is we can't do anything unless we have standards with respect to the knowledge and data that's represented in these systems. Imagine a city where every single department represents their information and data differently. You don't have to imagine that. That's how cities operate today. It takes no imagination whatsoever. Do you know what data standards uh, the city has? Toronto, city of Toronto has? The one data standard I was able to find was on how to represent dates, I think names maybe address. Now that's the one data standard I found. Second question is what's the degree of conformance amongst the different departments within the city? Not very. So every city department has its legacy data representations, it's legacy information systems, etc. They represent information differently and now if you say, hey we're going to take your logs, assuming you have logs, we wouldn't even be able to combine them and understand them because they're referring to things differently using different attributes, different values, etc. Et so data standards become important and the principle of data standards goes even deeper. What I have, which I've, I've referred in, in previous research, I used to say let no data uh, travel the internet alone. What I mean by that is that when you look at data, you look at a number. Okay, Let's say the number is uh, 14.6. So it's somewhere in a database, somewhere, someplace. What is that 14.6 mean? You have no idea, okay? Because we don't attra- attribute to the data, that datum. meta information. What quantity does it represent? Well, the quantity in this case is student-teacher ratio for the city of Toronto. When was it generated? It was January 2013, okay? How was it generated? What's the provenance of it? Where was it generated? The entire city of Toronto? Was it generated for a portion of Toronto? How valid is it? Do we really believe it's true? And do we trust the people who actually generated it? These are examples of meta information that you would like to have, but never travels with those numbers. Okay. So that's another principle, is to be able to capture that meta information. And then the fourth principle is we need a digital auditor general. Okay, and what I mean by that is there has to be a source of the rules, laws, and constraints that the system operates under. I mean, we just take for granted that we're going to conform to a set of rules, etc. But where do they come from? Who's the ultimate determiner of what rules, etc. that we should, that our system should conform to? I mean, we know they exist in books someplace, the province has their laws that govern the city of Toronto, but where in the systems themselves is the place where the system can go and find out what are the rules? Okay. And then the last thing is digital ombudsman. So I'm going back to what I was saying in the accountability dimension, the vehicle dimension of the urban operating system. Notice the difference in the robot that I used. <laughs> um, so, regardless of the success of first four principles, there's always be a need to investigate what we're wrong and to do so in the way that represents the needs of all stakeholders. Who represents you within these complicated systems? So, in conclusion, uh, oops, going the wrong way. In conclusion, um, it, it's it's funny. It's usually the case that public policy polls rather than precedes innovation. Okay. We're always trying to create policy for something that's already happened, as opposed to something that will happen. But in this case, research— uh, in this case, uh, research trails aspirations. And hopefully, from what uh, I said, you realize that what it is that we're putting in laws is not necessarily achievable. So. Part of my life I, I create companies. One of my previous companies was an online retail software and services company that I started in 1993. One of, one of the first in the, world's in, in the world and, and we have clients like um, American Express, FTD, the flower people, and in decor in Europe, um, on and on and on. And when we started out there was nothing around security. Okay, so when we got an order online we sent it to FTD in an email there was no encryption. Why was there no encryption? Because it wasn't available. Okay, so credit cards just went out over the thing. So sooner or later, encryption came in, HTTPS, you know, the thing's got better. Um, but during the 2000-2010 the, uh, period, they introduced... Uh, oh, I forget the name of the, the law or the requirement. Um, starts with P, I think. Anyway, whatever it is. introduced a law or a rule that says that you have to be compliant with these rules around security and privacy of information. And then companies like Pricewaterhouse, Accenture, everybody started offering certification services where they would come in and certify that you were compliant with this rule, in order for you to accept credit cards. So it wasn't like there was a law, but the credit cards refused to process transactions from you unless you were compliant with this rule. We had three different companies come in to do certification. Each one gave us different answers. Okay, everybody interpreted differently what the uh, rules were. It was a very expensive experience. And, and so what I'm saying is, even though we have these laws, even though we try and apply it, the people who are certifying it, or applying it, are human beings. They interpret things differently. We don't even get consistency there, even when we think we're pretty good at the laws. Now, with respect to accountability and explainability, transparency in AI systems, part of the problem that we have is misunderstanding of what comprises AI. Okay, it's as simple as that. And part of the problem is the Ignorance of the overwhelming complexity, uncertainty, deficiencies, and illicit behaviors embedded in the systems we wish to be held accountable. And the bottom line is we have a lot of research to be done before we can get to the point that we can achieve any level of accountability within the systems that we're creating. That's where I'll end. Thank you for staying. Thank you.